This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they have created a limited edition Everyday Hero shirt. There are only 2,000 of them available, and 100% of the proceeds are going to go to charity, and on top of that, for every purchase, they're going to donate an N95 mask to first responders in New York City, which is certainly one of the hardest hit areas in America during this crisis. And on top of that, as always, they still are offering the 15 percent discount to all listeners of Behind the Shield using the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And I just want to go over some of the products that I've featured in the past that I think are incredible. So you have the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great, comfortable alternative to the heavy, cumbersome duty boot. You have the uniforms, some of which I wore over a decade ago in Anaheim Fire, which I think are some of the most comfortable and come in a variety of fits to make sure they actually do fit the responder. The AMP backpack, which I've used from hiking to loading with plates on a cruise ship to exercise in, to traveling across the world when I see family and do interviews. And then more recently, the shorts and the jeans are incredibly comfortable. I've been using them as well and some of the flashlights. So there are so many things that will add value to your work life and your home life in their catalog of products. So just to reiterate again, go to 511 Tactical, that's 511-T-A-C-T-I-C-A-L.com. Use the code SHIELD15, save 15% and make a difference in your community. Welcome guys to episode 315 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the podcast Officer Ryan Tillman. Now, Ryan is the man behind Breaking Barriers United. He spent several years as a school resource officer and has a platform where he's really forged a positive image and a a relationship between law enforcement and not only children in the schools, but in the community as well. I do want to point out that we recorded this a few weeks ago, so this was early pandemic. I don't think there's any conflict, but if it sounds a little weird, then that's because we are several weeks in now. Before we get to that interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then, as I mentioned every week, this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories to get them to every ear hole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Ryan Tillman. Enjoy. Ryan, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time during this pandemic to uh, come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, it's an uh, honor to be on. All right. Well, well, I guess touching on that subject first, how is your perspective in California on the impact of this so far? You know, it, it's been pretty interesting, man. Um, you know, I, I've been seeing, I guess you can say, like uh, snippets of what our society is like and what our society becomes in the in the heat of a pandemic, and one of the examples I'll use is that we have that sheep mentality sometimes as uh, members of the society. For example, like you know, I, I, I've been saying this recently, but I, I knew we had a. I don't know if you guys have a a Popeyes chicken out your way, James. But, we do. Okay, so was the Popeyes pandemonium crazy when they came out with a chicken sandwich? 
Um, I didn't see it personally. I'm not. I'm not a frequent visitor to Popeyes, but um, I'm sure it was. If it was the same over there too. Chick- okay, chicken's so yeah, kind of so, big in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so here, um, you know, when Popeyes had launched the chicken sandwich, it was there were like lines around the building just to get the chicken sandwich, and a lot of that hype uh, came from you know social media where people got to see you know or people were just posting about this new chicken sandwich that they had. And so what was so crazy about it is that people wanted the chicken sandwich so bad that they actually started uh, committing crimes. I remember there were people that were getting stabbed over a chicken sandwich while they were standing in line. Uh, It was just crazy. And so for me, that was almost like a precursor to what our society has become uh, with this sheep mentality. And so, you know, you, you talk about the coronavirus and, you know, there's people that are buying tons and tons of toilet paper. And they don't even know why they're buying it. And so, you know, it's one of the things I, I guess this pandemic has shown me, you know, one of the areas of growth that we have to do as, you know, people within the United States and not only just the United States, but the world. Like, you know, we have this sheep mentality that I'm going to do it because they're doing it without actually making a conscious decision to just do it because I need to do it. Yeah. Well, I think we had some red flags before, like the pre-Christmas shopping of the 80s when the Cabbage Patch dolls came out and then yeah. the Black Friday the last 20 years. I mean, <laughs> we had yeah, some, some pretty strong. But then on the, on the other side, though, what I actually posted about this this morning, we've seen some amazing moments of you know compassion and, and community, especially where you have like those courtyards and there was one I posted in Spain where a fitness trainer led a whole class in this big block of apartments and everyone was on their balcony doing jumping jacks and stuff. And then there's the ones where they're all playing different musical instruments. So I think, again, that's a great, also a great example of who choose, chooses to put what out in social media. Do you want to film that shitbag that's fighting over the toilet paper or do you want to film that moment of kindness? Which one of those are you going to post and therefore you know, that sheep mentality can go in a good way too. And you can push people towards being kind to each other. Oh, I completely agree. And, and it's cool to actually see the talent, you know, how everybody uses their talents for good uh, if they want to. I saw some of the same videos. Some of the, one of the videos I saw was this girl. She's actually a student from the United States, but she's studying abroad in Italy. And, uh, you know, she uh, serenaded the whole uh, block with her voice and every, you know, everybody clapped for her. Then I saw, a video where there's like a DJ and he's, you know, playing a huge or he's DJing for the whole block. So, you know, I think it's also cool to actually see people when they utilize their God-given gifts, you know, for the sake of others instead of for themselves. And and it's a really selfish act, too, because it's not like you're going to get anything from it. So it's, you know, the best example of what selflessness looks looks like. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's what brought you and I together because you and I and many of these other people out there are using social media and and podcasting and and the internet to do good you know and there isn't really you know much of a um you know financial or any anything like that kick back at all it's just to try and make the world a little better and i think the the repayment is just knowing when you go to bed that you actually made a difference the same way as a police officer a medic a dispatcher a firefighter you know we don't do it for the money or the benefits we do it just to to make the world a little better i agree i agree 100 percent Right. Well, then, so I'd love to get to the very beginning of your story. So at the absolute you know, inception, where were you born and what was your family unit like? So uh, I was actually born in Fontana, California, uh, which is probably a few miles just uh, west of Rialto, California, which is where I was uh, raised at. 
Um, and so I grew up in Rialto, California, went to Rialto High School. Uh, and I, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have two parents in my house, uh, my mom and my dad, which were very, very hardworking people, middle class people. Um, and then I also have two sisters. I have an older sister and a younger sister who was only a year younger than me. So I was, you know, the only boy, the middle child. And, you know, people say I suffer from that middle child syndrome. Uh, but I was that guy. And it was kind of cool to be the only boy. I love my sisters. I always said, I, you know, I wish I had a brother growing up. But it was also cool to be the only boy. And I was because, you know, it allowed me to kind of gain my independency a little bit sooner, I would say. You know, I think sometimes when you have a brother, you and your brother kind of lean on each other. And this is just from what I've seen, because obviously I've never had a brother. But not having that brother, you know, as I grew older, I started to learn to become, you know, independent on my own and be more of a free thinker on my own, which is, I think, is what helped me, you know, helped me in today's, uh, you know, day and age with, you know, with the profession that I have, the family that I have now and the business that I run. Absolutely. Now, what did your mom and dad do? So my dad actually worked in education. So he was a, uh, you know, he did like all the the tech stuff at our school. So I, he actually worked at my high school. And then, uh, but my dad also did a lot of other things. He was on the planning commission. He was on the water board in our city. Uh, he ran for city council. Uh, and it was funny, man, like my dad, everybody knew who my dad was growing up. We would go all over the place and people would be like, Earl, Earl, Earl. And so like they all knew my dad. And so it's funny now because you know, people that knew my dad or, you know, my, my family or my sisters, they're always, you know, comparing me to how I'm just like my dad. So uh, my dad was kind of like the face of the family, but he's also the face for our city growing up. And my mom, she's uh, been an underwriter. So she works for, you know, Wells Fargo and, you know, does a lot of underwriting for the uh, real estate industry. Brilliant. All right. Well, I know that you, you talk about, um, you know, some of the experiences with law enforcement when you were younger before you actually became a cop. So, yeah, what are some of the stories that, that come to mind? Because ironically, I had it you know, as a young white farm boy in, in my town. We were still harassed by the policemen because <laughs> they think that teenagers are up to no good, even though, ironically, the kids I ran around with really weren't up to anything other than, like, stunts that could have broken our faces. That was about it. But <laughs> but what, what were some of the interactions that you had younger? Um, some of the interactions I had, man, I, I didn't have a lot of interactions. I probably, if, I could probably count on one hand how many interactions I had with uh, law enforcement. But uh, some of the ones that come to mind specifically is I remember one. Of the, I was driving through the city, so I had just gotten my license. I probably had my license for about a year at this point, and I was driving through the city. And as I was driving through the city, I remember I was talking on the phone. Now, granted, I, I realized I shouldn't have been talking on the phone at the time, but I was. And so I remember I had some, I was wearing a beanie and as I was wearing that beanie and driving my car, um, you know, some guys, some officers rolled up next to me and basically started cussing me out for no reason, telling me to get off the phone. But, you know, it wasn't, that's not how they said it. They were saying it with all these different cuss words. And then I just remember them telling me, you know, if I didn't wipe the smile off the fa my face, that they were going to pull me over and give me a ticket or take me to jail or something like that. And so that was one of the first interactions that I was like, you know, you know, why, why, what, what, what's the necessity for you to pull me over or not even pull me over, but just harass me like that. So then I remember there was another time that I was, um, you know, driving through this neighborhood and I was looking at some of the houses in the neighborhood. It was a very, very nice neighborhood. Now, granted, you know, it wasn't like I was driving a crazy looking car or a beat up car, not to say that that matters, but I use that for the context of the story. Um, you know, I'm driving a, you know, nice looking car, just looking at some of the houses 
just because one of the things that I've always done ever since I was a little boy is I've always, you know, tried to find aspirations in certain things with life, whether it be houses, whether it be cars, whatever it is, I just try to find inspiration behind all that stuff. And so I remember driving through this neighborhood to get some inspiration. And um, as I'm driving around, this guy is like following me in the neighborhood. And so as he's following me, he pulls up next to me and he rolls his window down and he tells me that I need to leave the location. Now, mind you, this is just looks like a plain regular civilian. He goes out of his way to tell me that he's an undercover or not an undercover, but he's an off duty deputy. And that uh, if he didn't, you know, if I didn't pull over, that he would call some people to have him come escort me off their premises or arrest me. So, you know, the worst part about that story was is that his young son was in the front seat of the car. And I'm like, you know, that's definitely not a good example that you want to lead for others. And so those were two specific incidents that I can realize. I had a few more, but some of the other ones that also come to mind is just some of my family members that have been mistreated. You know what I mean? I have a few family members, close family members that were pulled over, said they fit the description of like an armed robbery suspect. And then, uh, you know, sat on the curb, uh, sat on the curb, handcuffed, and then, you know, searched their car. And after it's all said and done, they're kicked loose and, you know, really not offered any information as to why they were stopped. And so those were some, those were some of the, you know, interactions that I had both directly and indirectly as a young lad growing up. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's come up a lot with some of the older people I've had on the show is the respect for police. You know, you just, you, you know, they, they always say like you wouldn't step out of line. You had this kind of um, innate respect but there was also the the community interaction too. They weren't out just like you know beating on people or anything. They they were there, um, you know, walking the streets. When I grew up, London in, and you know Bath and Corsham, all these places, they literally walk the beat. They walk around in in pairs yeah. and patrol the streets. So there was that you know interaction. They knew all the shopkeepers and you know the school kids and all, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. So you know, what's your observation of of going away from that and and the impact of separation of law enforcement and the community you know um law interaction between law enforcement and the community is a, a vital part in trying to bridge this gap um so i've been an officer for about six years now and i've always taken pride in getting to know the community and so you know if you, if you were to cruise around with me in my city and we went to the local gas station and i'm not going to name names just for the simple fact of confidentiality but I can go to the Chevron and one of the Chevrons in our city uh, and, and tell you the name of the lady that works there and what hour she works. Then I can go to the Circle K and I can give you the name of my buddy who also works there. Then I can go to the donut shop. And yes, I did say donut. <laughs> I can go to the donut shops and give you the names of the people that work there. And I can go down the list of educators, people that work in the city, people that have warehouses and tell you their names, what they do and what times they work. And that's so important because now I'm getting to know the people in my community. So if I ever go on a call for service or they call us or whatever it may be, I've already gotten to know these people as opposed to needing to get to know them. And so one of the downfalls as police officers that we do is we don't get to know the community until we have to know them. And we need to flip that. We need to reverse that and get to know them before we have to know them. And, you know, I didn't come up with that quote. Uh, there's actually a guy, I can't remember his name, but. That was his that was his uh, mantra is like, hey, look, get to know the community before you have to know them. And so I've kind of adopted that in my own way of policing. And I've realized that if I can do that, then really I can change the way people see law enforcement and uh, and broach that topic of better relationships with the community. Yeah. Now, I know from the fire department standpoint, you know, we have got busier and busier and busier. And, you know, we're running on, in my opinion, many calls that 
we shouldn't be. You know, there's this, I think, misinterpretation of customer service. I mean, it should be empathy and compassion. But now, you know, they've got just just all kinds of stuff and you're running on everything, you know, imaginable and the word emergency has been lost in translation Mm -hmm. and so i know that workload is put incredible strain you know on the workforce and mental health all these other areas are are you seeing that same trend in law enforcement that's the the core load is such that maybe it's creating a barrier to really foster relationships with the community as well yeah, well, well, here's the reality of it. I mean, yeah, we're everybody seeing it. I mean, with the reduction of, you know, certain crimes, the decriminalization of things, um, you know, police are getting called for things that really, if you quite uh, quite honestly, aren't police issues. I mean, when we go on a barking dog call, like I always make the joke is like, why are we getting called to go to a barking dog? Like, am I going to, you know, tell Toto or whatever, like, hey, come here, stop barking, like, and and he's all of a sudden going to listen because I'm a police officer? No. So it's like, why are we getting called? However, the thing that I've recognized, though, is that it's our, we we as officers or or first responders or firefighters, whatever it is, we have every ability to control our own narrative. Like, it's imperative that we control our narrative. And so what's happened is, is because that we've gotten out of line or gotten out of, you know, um, you know, doing things that we shouldn't be doing, it's, it's caused this divide, and so now we're trying to play catch-up, and we're being forced to respond to things. We're being forced to react when we don't want to react in certain situations because nobody has that trust in law enforcement uh, specifically, and so we're working backwards. And so that's why, like with my organization, I'm like, if we can really get in front of things, if we can really show people the value of law enforcement, if we can educate people on what law enforcement is all about, then you know later on down the line, we may just may be able to mitigate some of these calls for service. And so that way, you know, the people, the community are our biggest advocates in telling people, hey, you shouldn't be calling police for this. Or, hey, you know, this is not an emergency priority one call. Maybe go in and report this. And so, but we have to do that as law enforcement. We have to be able to go out there, you know, be diligent in repairing the bond between law enforcement and the community. So that way the community can be our biggest advocates when it comes to mitigating issues like that. Brilliant. Love it. All right. Well, then I'd love to just kind of get to the road, your personal road into law enforcement, and then we'll kind of move forward from there. So, we, you know, we're at the kind of high school level at the moment. Physically, how how were you prepared you know, as a young man? Were you an athlete? Were you playing sports back then? Oh, yeah, man. I was, I man, grew up playing sports. I played t-ball when I was younger. I played tennis. Uh, my dad had me involved in everything, swimming. Uh, you know, I, I say my dad and my mom. You know, and then when as I got older, I really started gravitating towards football and track for the most part. And, uh, you know, in high school, I played football all four years as well as track. And ultimately, I went on to go play at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I walked on there. And about after a year and a half there, I received a full scholarship. So football was kind of like the door that opened for me that allowed me to just get access to the rest of the world. Right. And then so career wise, what were your aspirations back then? You know, it's funny, man. Like, I, I honestly didn't really have any career aspirations other than being an entrepreneur. Like I always loved the fact of being an entrepreneur just for the simple fact of like, um, you know, you can kind of create or control your own destiny when it comes to entrepreneurship. And there's also like, just as an athlete, you're competing with everybody in the industry. You know, sometimes when you're an employee of a place, like, yeah, there's probably competition to get promotions and things like that. But at the end of the day, you're working for somebody else. And so you really can't control what it is that you want to do as an organization. And so I, I recognized early on that if I became an entrepreneur, I can c- control the narrative that I want to put out. 
I can control the business that I want to do. And I, I can also get that financial freedom. And so early on, I really always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And when I became a police officer, I thought my entrepreneur goals were dead at that point. Right. So tell me about that that journey, because you, you had a kind of a life moment that caused you to go into law enforcement. Yeah. So what it was for me was uh, my wife and I, um, we got married. And uh, at the time when we before we got married, you know, I was doing working at Abercrombie & Fitch, which was one of the worst jobs ever. Uh, with or without your shirt (laughs) i know with my shirt (laughs) and sorry for those of you that if you do work at abercrombie fish sorry there's no knock on you but i'm still waiting like i'm always saying people like uh i'm waiting for that commercial that comes along and you know 10 years from now that says if you worked at abercrombie fish from the years 2011 to 2015 you're uh, entitled to a uh a a lawsuit for all the (laughs) cologne that was sprayed during the 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 store hours because you probably have cancer now like uh, they placed, they sprayed so much cologne there. It was ridiculous. But I was working there and then I worked as a uh, real or not a real estate, but a uh, insurance uh, salesman and, and did, um, you know, investments and things like that. And so when my wife and I got married, you know, the thing about those industries is that, you know, the my my pay was up and down. It was never steady. And so when my wife and I had got married, she ended up getting pregnant about a year after we were married. And uh, I I knew as a young man, like, there's no way that I'll be able to provide for my family unless either A, I just really just sell out to selling insurance and investments or B, I go out and get something that's more steady. And so, you know, my dad's friend at the time was a captain for a local police department here. And, uh, you know, he was just telling me, like, Ryan, you should become a police officer. You should become a police officer. And I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to work for the man. Like, I don't want to be a pig. Like, that was my mentality this whole time because of those interactions I had as a young guy. And so uh, I prayed about it, you know, cause you know, God is probably been one of the most fundamental pieces of my life. So I prayed about it and I said, God, if this is what you want me to do, then open the door. And uh, sure enough, man, God opened the door. And uh, next thing you know, I became a police officer for the agency that I'm with now. Right now, this interesting thing. So you refer to, to police officers as pigs. Um, what was kind of like the general feeling then you had your own personal experiences. You're obviously, you know, hanging out with other, you know, men and women that that had maybe similar, maybe opposing views. What was like the overall in, uh, relationship or perception of PD with the group that you hung out with up to that point? Well, the group that I hung out with, we we weren't fans of police officers, but there's one thing that I realized, James, about myself, and this is it's, it kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation of that sheep mentality, like. I've, all, I've often said that it's popular not to like police. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you have this whole phenomenon going on with police brutality and, you know, people getting their rights violated. When if we actually were to sit down and break down every single interaction that happens with law enforcement in the community, we're talking about a lot of different interactions that every single member of the community has with law enforcement on a daily basis. And so the amount of negative interactions is very, very small percentage. But yet, because of social media and because of the, you know, uh, dramatization of what's really going on, we're almost led to believe like, hey, man, we don't like we don't like cops. Like, let's revolt against police like police. You know, they have this, you know, bad boy mentality that they don't care. They can do whatever they want. And I'm not here to sit here to say, like, none of that doesn't exist. Like, of course, some of that stuff exists, but it's not, you know, to the level that people are led to believe. And so when I grew up, when I was younger, like I said, it was almost popular to have that 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 standpoint, like, 
that we don't like police. And that's, it is, is what it is. And then you can go back to pop culture. You can go back to public enemy number one. Like there's so many different things in society that, I mean, uh, there's certain songs I was listening to the other day that talks about F12. Like we're ingrained, like that's what it's ingrained in us. So, you know, think about it from that standpoint. Like imagine being a young kid right now, listening to music and part of the music you're listening to talks about F12 and F these pigs and this, this and that. And you've never had a bad experience with police officer ever you're going to be ingrained essentially to not like police and you don't even know why you like police. So, you know, unfortunately I had that sheep mentality growing up to not like police um, just based on a lot of our pop culture. Yeah. You know, and I agree a hundred percent. So I was a little farm boy in the West country of England and I loved hip hop. So, you know, I was exposed to, you know, NWA and, and, and I've always leaned towards a more conscious hip hop anyway. It just made more sense to me, especially as it, the last 15 plus years where it was more about your watch and your car and how many gold mm-hmm. teeth you had than actually trying to make a difference in your community. <laughs> but even now, I mean, I point this out to, to a couple of guests before. The people that were like saying that, so you got Ice Cube, for example, you had Ice-T that had his cop killer rock song, and now they both play police officers on television. <laughs> so what the fuck you know i mean it, it, you realize the whole thing is just bullshit absolutely bullshit and if people have personal experiences where something's happened i totally get it but i couldn't agree with you more that sheep mentality and even there's a band now that i really really like called fever 333 is a rock band but a lot of theirs is anti-police rhetoric as well logic another positive positive ish rapper and then he's got a, a lot of that crap too and it's just it, it, to me, it's like you got a question. Is this just being said now so you can sell more albums? Because to, to say an entire profession is corrupt in all you know, in a lot of your music is is just you know a real sellout in my opinion. Well, let, let me share this with you. So I, I do a lot of speaking at at uh, schools, and so one of the questions I always ask is, you know, who in here doesn't like police? You know, so I'll go up down the gamut and say, who doesn't like police? Who's had a bad experience with police? You know, who is directly or indirectly had a bad experience with police? Who's seen a bad police video on TV? And I get hands up for every single question I'd ask. So the funny thing is, is that, you know, at some point during my presentation, I'll ask somebody to come up there and, and share a bad experience with me that they've had with law enforcement. So what's funny about it is, you know, I, I know the ones that are being genuine because the ones that are being genuine, you can see it all on their face. Some of them get very emotional about it. I've actually had pe- people, you know, almost tear up, you know, when they're telling me about this bad experience with law enforcement. But then I'll get others that will come up there and you can tell right in front of everybody. I can tell because that's what I do. I'm a trained observer that they're crafting a story in right in front of my face about this negative interaction with law enforcement. That's never actually occurred. And if it did occur, it wasn't to the, you know, the effect that they're making it seem or portraying it to people. And so with that being said, you know, we have to realize, like, there's so many people out there right now that don't like police officers. But if you really ask them why, I guarantee you most people wouldn't actually have an explanation of why they don't like police. And if they did have an explanation, it's going to be because they saw a video on TV or they know somebody that's had a bad experience with a police officer. And if they said that they had a personal bad experience with police officers, ask them to share it with you. And I guarantee you a lot of them are going to have to craft something. Now, I do preface that by saying this, though, is that. You know, there are some legitimate people out there that have had some really negative interactions with law enforcement. So I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to make it seem like those negative interactions don't exist. I've had them myself. I see them as a police officer now that they exist. But to the extent that people are trying to make it seem, it's definitely not even close. 
Yeah. Well, I've had two very, very, very negative experiences with law enforcement as a dad this last three months, both of which ended up with my son being sent to a psych facility. And it was just, I mean, I'm going to get into this in a little bit with, with the schools and just saying saying something that was, you know, escalated way past any protocol. And, you know, both of those, you know, I, I disagree with 100%. However, I also see it from the perspective of you were poorly trained or you've been told to follow rules that are completely bullshit. And so it's a systemic thing that needs to be changed. It's a giant knee jerk to some of the school shootings we've had. Um, you know, and that's, I think, another area where there's people don't really focus on the extenuating circumstances, the, the contributing factors to this. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some awful police officers out there, some awful firefighters, some awful medics. I've had the dad of a kid that was intubated the wrong way and died through wow. some horrendous medical, you know, um, just complete screw ups that the medic is completely responsible for. Um, wow. You know, so they exist in every single profession. But, you know, an area I kind of point out a lot with law enforcement is, has anyone pointed out how many shifts they had to work if sleep deprivation was involved? Was there any access to jujitsu or, you know, I mean, like all these other factors, how much training, how much work have they done where that, you know, tinted car where you reached for a driving license, he thought he was going for a gun, you know, I mean, they're, 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 it's the gray area ones that I think we really need to to look at more closely. The blatant ones, the guy was running away, he was unarmed, he shot him in the back. Well, there's one recently, I don't know if you saw it, with the two black officers wrestling with a guy and they basically just didn't have the skills and so one says to the other one, shoot him. And, they, and she ends up shooting him. You know, and, and those, some of those are like, that's just screams lack of training. I want to give you some rough numbers that I actually saw I was doing some research. Um, it says that there are 29,000 arrests made per day 10.5 million arrests made per year. There's 40,000 contacts made per day by law enforcement, which equals 14.6 million contacts per year. And the amount of people that actually get shot and killed by police is less than 1%. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And of, of which the mistakes we have to fix and we have to find, you know, areas that we can improve. And I think that, you know, there are absolutely lessons learned from some of these. But I think, you know, the the, the knee jerk that every single time you know, someone of color is killed by someone who's white is you know, immediately a hate crime is also the wrong way of looking at it. We have to, in my opinion, look at the things that are even creating those interactions. And I've talked about this a lot, like our prison system is is just horrendous. Like we're, get, we're getting more and more and more prisons built and filling them. And then, you know, the drug policy, um, you know, is creating a huge amount of crime, not, not just nationally, but internationally over the Mexican border. You know, if you create areas in in society where you are less likely to create people who are going to break the law in the first place, it's going to be safer for the citizens and it's going to be safer for law enforcement. I agree. I agree 100 percent, my man, 100 percent. Right. Well, then, so with your journey into law enforcement, um, at what point did you become a school resource officer? So about uh, I want to say about. Four years into it, four and a half years into my uh, profession or my career in law enforcement is when I became a school resource officer. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, when I initially wanted to get into the school resource officer, you know, assignment, you know, I, I would have people tell me like, hey, you know, you don't want to do that. You know, why would you want to work with kids and this and that? almost talked me out of it in a sense. It was kind of funny. 
Um, and it kind of goes back to that misconception of, you know, what the actual role of a school resource officer is. And so, you know, I'm not going to lie. Briefly, I started to buy into it. I was like, yeah, man, like, why would I want to do that? Because, you know, all the cool stuff that people do are, you know, working narcs, working undercover, working gangs, like those, like, that's the cool stuff. Like, that's the glamour stuff that we see on TV. Um, and so I would start to buy into that. And then that was almost a mentality. Like the only way to promote through the ranks is by going through one of those special assignments. But one of the things I realized is, is that if you really want to promote in law enforcement, it's not necessarily what route you're going to take. It's what you do with the route that you take. And so when I wrote, noticed that I said, you know, what? I have a passion to work with kids. I love working with kids. I've always loved mentoring kids. And so why not go become a school resource officer and as a school resource officer, I can put my all into it. I can give it my all my full passion into it. I can put my talents into it. I can give everything into it and I can still promote up through the ranks. And so, you know, I love that role because I got to see what it truly meant to be a mentor and meet kids right where they're at in life and also recognize that these kids are going to be our t tomorrow's leaders. And so that's what people don't also realize is that, you know, we can keep discounting the next generation as much as we want. We can keep talking about how they, you know, this is a generation that everybody gets a trophy or we can talk about how soft this generation is. But what we don't realize is that if we don't help them, if we don't mentor them, if we don't help them get to the next level that they want to get to, they're going to be tomorrow's leader and they just might be leading you. And so, you know, I took that I took a passion behind that and saying, you know, let me go out there and try to really coach this next generation up. So that way we can get rid of a lot of the problems that we have involving, you know, you know, depression or bullying or whatever it may be, you know, why can't I be the role model for them? And, you know, quite frankly, that actually ended up being one of the best moves I made early on in my career because that actually helped me get promoted. And so what's funny is, is like, I wasn't trying, I, I didn't do it to get promoted. I wasn't trying to get promoted. I just went there to put my all into it. And the result of that was me getting promoted. Yeah, most interesting. I think it's fantastic. And something that's been mentioned a lot, and I've seen it with my son's school, is, you know, and I mean no disrespect, I'm not trying to tar everyone with the same brush, but you see a lot of the school resource officers are older, maybe deconditioned, you know, maybe not the the you know top of their game person that you would want at that school. God forbid someone walked in you know, with ill intent. And so I think it's great that they... You know, that your department was was you know uh, wanting to send a young fit you know motivated officer to that school because I think that's what we need more of I mean I know you know where where my little boy is I don't know I might I, I've, I've been told what I've been told and I've seen with my own eyes the the poor decisions that were made with his case but you know would that person be be the rock star that you need you know when it happens so I think that there should be um, you know, uh, a track into the schools when you're, you know, younger and more motivated. And another thing too with that is that you got to look at it like this is like, you know, yeah, law enforcement is law enforcement, but it's also a business. And so, you know, the entrepreneur side of me looks at it like this is, you know, why would I not want to put my best looking, best, most fit, best personality representative representative of the department? Why would I not want to put them in a school? Like, because that's what's going to be shown to the next generation. And so if we want to talk about curving this, you know, the perception of the way people view law enforcement. Well, the way you curve it is you put, you know, some of your most finest, you know, men and women in front of these kids that can actually relate to 
So that way, you know, when they come out of it, they're like, you know, I know not all police officers are what I see on TV. So you start to change the brand of what your agency looks like. It all goes back to branding. It's simple. You know what I mean? If business, if Coca-Cola, you know, is putting, you know, Coke in every single, you know, TV across the country, if Gatorade is making their, their athletes make sure the logo shows at their press conference, they're doing it because they recognize the importance of branding. So why would you not want to brand your officers amongst your community so that way it shows what it truly means to be, you know, a good officer and making the right decision and what our, our profession should be? Yeah. And I think with with the age, I mean, not saying that a school resource officer should be younger, but if you're going to relate to school age, then if you were a younger officer, these kids will be able to see themselves in that uniform. I think there's a disconnect. I mean, I'm 45 now, almost 46. I'm sure I look like 80 to, you know, <laughs> most eight-year-olds, you know what I mean? So, um, but yeah, but having that connection is something I talk about a lot, even with this damn virus at the moment, is there's no discussion at all about, you know, this is a this is a kind of red flag for the fact that we have a very unhealthy nation. But there's no discussion about maybe we should clean up the way we farm. Maybe we shouldn't spray our food with chemicals, keep our, you know, animals in, in factory farms. Maybe we shouldn't have fast food and sodas in our schools so that we create young, resilient men and women that when these viruses come through, a much, much, much smaller percentage are going to be at risk. And I think that's the same even with, you know, what you're doing with you. And I had Craig Kanaomi on the show too, the skateboarding cop. <laughs> um, oh, very, very cool. Yeah, he was on uh, about, about a year ago now, I think. Um, and, you know, but but putting you guys in the school, obviously the protection element is huge now, sadly, but also creating that that relationship and changing the view of these children on you know law enforcement and just you know life in general this the schools are the place we can make huge changes but we seem to miss that we miss that with our food we teach them that fast food is how you eat in america it's just a horrendous message to send children we teach them that life is about standardized testing rather than play and experimentation and then the same with police you know we 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 it's a great opportunity to change that relationship and that perception so what were some of the changes that you were able to to do and see in the time that you were in the schools you know for me is i one of the things i harped on with all the students was getting away from that standardized thinking um kind of like you mentioned you know, we've become as society very uh, reactionatory, if that's a word. Uh, you know, we, we, we react instead of being proactive. Uh, it was funny. We were talking about yesterday how these stores are just crowded and over, you know, it's just ridiculous. Can't find anything. But, you know, this was a good reminder that, you know, natural disasters can happen and you need to be prepared before it happens. You know, we've gotten lulled to sleep to think, oh, that can't happen to me. It's that that can't happen to me mentality that's getting us into trouble. And so one of the things I deal with students is, you know, I always tell them like, you know, school is good for the reasons that you don't think of. And what I mean by that is like, you know, we all think school, we've been led to believe that school is good because if you do good in school, you go to college, you get an education, you get an education, you come out, you get a job. Like that's what we've been led to believe. Well, I kind of think the contrary is that, you know, school is good because it reveals the type of character that you have as a person. School is good because it trains you to get up early. School is good because it trains you to finish assignments, even though you don't want to finish the assignment. School is good because, you know, it, it, it will reveal, you know, the hardships that you're going to have to overcome. Those are life lessons that, that will last you a lifetime. But, you know, to go to school and think that Y equals MX plus B is going to help me be a better person. 
I mean, I'm still looking to use the the the, the algorithm what algorithm y equals mx plus b. Not to say that people don't use it. So, you know, what I would always tell my students is you have to be able to learn how to think outside the box. Like this country was built on entrepreneurship. It was like people came to this country, they they figured out a need and they went out there and fulfilled the need. And so, you know, one of the things that I like to think of now is like, you know, everybody is so afraid of this coronavirus thing. But as I was coming in to do this podcast today, I was listening to another a friend of mine. His name is Vedros. Uh, he has a podcast called The Empire Show. It's a great show. And one of the things that he discusses on or today's episode was the fact of, you know, he sees this as an opportunity. Like what problems are out there right now that we can go and solve? And so I would always put that on my kids out there is like, look, you need to go out there, figure out the needs that the school has right now. And how can we go out there and fix it? And so it's funny when I right before I left, I didn't get a chance to, you know, uh, go through with this uh, just because I got promoted right right before it. But one of the things I wanted to create for schools was a committee that, you know, is put together of all the most influential kids on campus. So some of your bad students, some of your good students, some of your athletes. And I wanted them to have a, a monthly meeting where they come together with the admin of the school. So the principals and they did a roundtable and they discussed the issues. And as they discuss the issues, they figure out what are some of the issues that's going that's plaguing our school, depression, bullying, whatever may be fighting. And then I wanted them to come up with a collective plan so that way they can implement it on the school. But what that would do was it gave them buy in. It gave them, you know, accountability. It, it made them feel like they were inclusive as opposed to the administration just putting on some new rule. And now they got to abide by it. And I thought by doing that, it now puts them in a position if it's, you know, for them to see, you know, what is it like to be a true problem solver and have a voice at the table, man. So, you know, one of the things I put on all the students, man, is you got to be a free thinker. You got to be able to think outside your box. So that way you can help push the society forward. Yeah, I love that. I think, you know, seeing a problem as an opportunity to bring a solution is exactly what I think the, you know, the nation needs, period. You know, there's so much like mindless bitching. And I say so much, we're exposed to it. It might not be even that much. And that's the problem. It's kind of a, you know, a warped perspective a lot of times. But you know, people, I mean, the, the political stuff is a perfect example. Oh, you know, this, this candidate didn't do this last time they were in power. And oh, this candidate, you know, isn't doing it this time. And it's like, well, you keep pointing at other people. When are you going to step up and start making a difference yourself? Yeah. It's easy. It's easier to put, put the blame off on somebody else. Yeah. Unfortunately. Right. Well, you touched on mental health. So I'd love to kind of explore the mental health and bullying. When, when you were there, um, what, what was the frequency of that? And did you did you identify any any good solutions to some of those areas? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I definitely saw it a lot, uh, I think, you know, going back to social media and the sheep mentality is, you know, again, we've been led to believe that everybody drives nice cars and fancy cars and lives in big houses and stuff. And so you almost start to see like or believe like, man, if I'm not doing that, then, you know, I'm not that good. And so what social media has created is this overwhelming sense of depression. And so when I recognized that with the students, I felt like, you know, what can we do to get them out of this feeling of being depressed and realizing that life is a lot of uh, life is about, um, you know, your family, your friends, It's not necessarily about the nice cars that you drive and things like that. And so what I would do is I would sit down with them and I created this thing called, you know, the future you. And so. You know, what I realized is that, you know, when we live day to day, you know, a lot of times we just go, you know, live our lives and don't even think about tomorrow. 
And so we don't plan. We, we, we just don't, we don't plan for tomorrow. And so what we need to do is I created this future you, which is like, what do you look like? What does the future you look like? And I heard this from a good friend of mine. His name is Jamal and Jamal is a retired police officer out of Chicago. And he, he always talks about like, he can't take credit for what the 30 year old, 31 year old, he says the 41 year old Jamal can't take credit for what the 31 year old Jamal thought of 10 years ago. And what he meant by that was at 31 years old, he started to strategically plan what he wanted his life to look like, what he wanted to do. And with that plan, he was actually able to go out there and have a customized uh, program to accomplish those goals. So, you know, part of the Future You program that I created was, you know, you have to de develop immediate short term and long term goals. You, can, you know, those immediate goals are things that you can go out and accomplish today. You know, if you want to lose weight, well, one of the immediate goals that you can go accomplish is go to the gym tonight. Uh, if you want to, you know, get in better shape, well, one of the immediate goals you can do is instead of eating, you know, McDonald's for lunch, go out and eat a salad. Those are things that you can do now, whereas your short term goals are, you know, goals that you can accomplish from a year to one year to five years. And so that can be anything from, you know, hey, I want to pay down some debt. Hey, I want to, you know, buy a car. Hey, I want to, you know, move out of my apartment and buy a house. Like that's a, a short term goal. And then your long term goals are anywhere from five to 10 years. And notice I stopped at 10 years. And the reason I stopped at 10 years is because at that 10 year mark, you should be able to reevaluate and look back and see what you've accomplished. And now you create new goals for yourself. And so those five to 10 year goals may be something that's a little bit further out. But yet, you know, at 10 year mark, you got to reevaluate re and see if you were able to accomplish that. And so the, what I would always tell my students that if you go back and look at your immediate goals, your immediate goals are going to be a, a, a conduit to making sure that your short term, and your long term goals are getting checked off. And so what that end up doing for those kids is it actually start focusing, uh, put their focus on accomplishing goals that were going to get them where they wanted to be, as opposed to focusing on everyone else which would ultimately bring down some of that depression that they were experiencing in their life. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that as well, because I've had a couple of people who um, are involved in child psychology and they, and they also point to the same thing as a social media. And it's something that I've observed myself. Say, for example, you want to be a skateboarder. Well, now you're going to you know, start following other skateboarders and you realize there's an eight-year-old in Wisconsin who is as good as Tony Hawk was when he was an adult. And you're like, well, screw it. There's no point in me even doing it now. That kid's going to be better than me. You know what I mean? So there's always that extreme. And so I think that's pulling away a lot of the self-belief. You know, when, when I was younger, my mom and dad used to literally tell me, you can be anything in this world, you know? And, and you know, could I have actually been? I, I, there's, there's definitely things that involve math where there's no way in hell I would have. But, yeah, exactly. you know, but I appreciate their, their, you know, belief. But I think that's it is fostering that belief instead in, in, in going down a road that's going to be nurturing. And the problem is the focus right now is the material side. Like I, you know, I want this house or this car or whatever. And that may well be a byproduct of your journey and something that you would like to have one day. But if that's the focus, if that's the actual target, then, you know, they're, they're, going down the wrong path whereas if you say well i've always found you know medicine law enforcement you know law whatever it is fascinating i'm gonna go and do that and be the best i can and try and change lives and so many people have had on here say and then one day you'll look around and realize you're in that circle that you wanted to be i agree i agree right well then with the the mental health side a very very personal um thing to me at the moment is 5150 baker acts you know whatever whatever it's called in whichever state, but forced um, uh, taking children to a psychiatric ward because 
they've said self-harm or or you know threats in my son's case he was literally in a classroom um tearing up someone asked what are you thinking he was seeing these things in his mind wasn't threatening one you know he was literally asked what's going on in your mind um and he ended up getting taken to a psych ward in and even i was on the phone with the school they refused to tell me what was going on no one consulted with me and the next thing he's there um so yeah so it's been you know a real bone of contention for me to to fix that specific issue in our schools because i think it's it's wrong and some of the psychology and psychiatry experts i've had on the show have all kind of that their view is the same like it's a huge knee jerk and the pendulum has swung the other way after some of the school violence so what was your observation of that specific area in in your time in the schools so at least for me is anytime I got called to like a 5150, you know, situation, um, obviously when I get there, my number one goal is to evaluate them and see, you know, what we're dealing with. And, you know, is there something that I can offer? Is there a solution I can offer right there on the spot? Or does this student need more of a, a long-term care plan? But one of the priorities that I always had every single time was making sure that we can at least get their notific- notify their parents of what's going on. Like, you know, I have three kids myself. And if somebody, you know, did something without me knowing it, I would be, you know, pissed off. I mean, the reality of it is, is like I wouldn't want anybody to do anything with my kids unless I knew about it because they're, you know, they're they're juveniles for a reason because they don't know things. And so they need somebody, you know, an adult there to help them navigate through situation or crisis. And so one of the things I always made it a point to do was make sure that throughout the process, the parent was on the phone. And they were at least being kept abreast of the situation. A lot of times we'd have parents come to the school or there would be times where, you know, they they would meet us to wherever we're going. But I would always let them know, hey, you know, I want to keep you in the loop on things. This is what's going on. However, I still have a job to do and my job is to evaluate them. And so if you ask me about the, you know, the mental health system, I think we have uh, upward battle when it comes to mental health. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think need to be fixed with the mental health system without getting into specifics of it. But, you know, I do know that as police officers, we're called at times to do evaluations of people to see if they're going to be, you know, a danger to themselves, a danger to others, or if they're gravely disabled. And so, you know, in order to do that job, you know, I felt it was easier to keep the family in the loop because, you know, the last thing I want to do is keep somebody out of the loop and now they don't know where their kid is at or that kid feels even more, you know, stressed or, or, or pressured because they don't have anybody going through it with them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's my thing. There's, there's a middle ground. And the irony is the school has very well written protocols, which they completely disregarded. Like it was supposed to be a de-escalation thing. I mean, he, you know, like I said, he was just sitting there not even saying anything and they pulled it out of what he was thinking. And it was basically a, you know, a, a, a non-issue that should have been, um, you know, I was on my way there. It should have been talked to the parents and that's it. And it ended up with him being stuck in a psych ward for two days with all his shoelaces taken away from him. So, wow. you know, it, it was just absolutely crazy. So, you know, my I'm thing is, yeah, it was, it was awful. Literally one of the worst two days of my life. But, you know, my thing again, it's not blaming, even though this particular deputy, I think, made a horrendous decision. Um, you know, if, if they have been told by whoever's training them, oh, you know, you know, it doesn't matter what other people think you're, you have the power to do this, then that's deviating from common sense completely. But, Again, it's training, it's fixing problems. It's happened to my son, it's already happened. You know, I can't take that time back, but I can fix it for for people in the future. And I think this is something that I hope all parents and even members of law enforcement too will look into is like, how can we do this better? Because 
the it seems now and I've, I've had this told to me by several people in that system that it's being used as a babysitter now the psych psych facility they can just send that kid off and that way you know i can check my box i dealt with it move on with with the school and that's obviously as you know not not going to help anyone that's actually affected by it well not only that too you also have the, the the flip side of that is you have people that are utilizing that that system um to you know go in there get off of their feet you know get free food whatever it may be i mean I've gone out with the people that know exactly the words to say in order that so that way we could take them straight there. Even though they may not necessarily be going through a crisis, they know the key words, the buzzwords to say. So that way it forces the hands of officers to take them there. So that's why I say there needs to be some type of, like you said, a middle ground that we can you know use to evaluate these situations accordingly. So that way there's no abuse coming to the system or there's no abuse of power. Absolutely. All right. Well, then shifting focus a little bit, what about um, these horrendous, you know, mass, I mean, say shootings, mass murders that we've seen in some of the schools, as far as school security with you, you know, being on the streets, then in the schools, what is your opinion of some good solutions for school security at this point where we're sadly in the midst of this mental health crisis? I definitely think it's important to have police officers on campus. And so, you know, I, I've heard the other side of the gamut where people are saying, no, there should not be a police presence on campus because you're making it seem or you're making our kids, you know, in fear or that dominance that they don't need. And I, I see where they're trying to come from. But here's why I think police officers should be on campus. And this is coming from somebody that worked on campus is that, you know, we live in a society where there could be a threat to our kids even while they're on a school campus. I mean, it's been proven where you've seen people come onto campus with, you know, uh, you know, assault weapons or assault rifles or whatever. And, um, you know, they're taking the, the lives of our children. And so, you know, why would you not want to have a first responder on campus that can at least engage this person and try to minimize some of, some of that damage that they're going to cause? The other thing of that is, is that it's a perfect place to rebrand and, really reshape the way you know our youth see law enforcement if you can have a good school resource officer on campus that is a great way to start changing that barrier or breaking some of those barriers with these kids because if you have the right person they will do it every single day and, I, and i'm proof of that you know a lot of the kids if you go to my campus that i worked at most of the kids there will tell you that you know i had a good relationship with them and so unfortunately if you don't have a school resource officer on campus you know, and that uh, that kid, you know, goes out and gets pulled over when he starts to drive or, you know, he's in the park and the officers come there because they got a call for service. Well, now one of the first experience that they're going to have with law enforcement may be in a negative environment. And so I personally believe that by having the school resource officer on campus, you know, it kills two birds with one stone. Not only do you bridge that gap between law enforcement and the community, but it also uh, provides a, a measure of safety that not necessarily will prevent everything. But it, at least it gives you a first line of defense, so that way the teachers and your kids aren't in the uh, aren't amongst the carnage if, if when that uh, situation happens of like a, a you know active shooter or something like that. Yeah, and I think that just is common sense as far as the deterrent side too. You know, if you are a, sh a shooter, most of these, you know, we've seen when they've when potential shooters have actually been approached, uh, more often than not, they stop the shooting. Like if, if they, you know, someone's it could be an unarmed teacher, but someone who just comes at them because in their mind, the plan was not to have any resistance. Well, now you come on campus and you've got a police officer who your perception is, is, is highly trained, has got a, a, a vest, you know, is going to be a pretty tough threat. Um, you know, I think that just for that reason alone, and then like you said, if there's any fear of that police officer, 
that shows that there's a relationship that needs to be built there as well because those kids have got the wrong impression of law enforcement on top of them. Yeah, 100%. And it needs to be the right officer too. I mean, you can't, you know, we've gotten in a place sometimes as law enforcement that we put some of the worst people in that spot. And it's like, that's the last place you want somebody that's bitter or angry with the profession or angry with people. That's the last place you want them is on a school campus because now they're a liability to not only the department, but also the school. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to kind of move over to um, some stuff that you've been doing, which is Tillman's Take. So when I had um, Ron Starworth on the show, he we talked about it before we start recording. He was the black officer from Colorado Springs that infiltrated the KKK. Freaking hilarious story. Um, and he you know, did definitely avoided some pretty horrendous violence, I'm sure, as well. But in his book, he does a very good job um, out of speaking you know no holds barred about um people who are shot that you know was complete bad cop syndrome you know just just horrendous mistakes that should never have happened but then he also details a story of a young black man um who murdered a restaurant worker and then the, the big kind of black power movement came in and was all angry at the of the city and, and, and he basically stood up and was like, what are you talking about? You know, this, this kid basically stated, I want to feel like, I feel, want to feel what it's like to murder someone. That was his statement. <laughs> so, wow. you know, that's wow. not, so that's the problem is these polarizing things when the reality is obviously each individual case, you know, you've got to look at and see, was this a, a terrible police officer or was this, like we said, that gray area, a sleep deprived officer that, you know, mistook reaching for a license as reaching for a weapon or, or, you know, a completely justified use of force because, you know, I've, I've, God knows, you know, how many uh, police officers we lost here that have been murdered by people on traffic stops and other related things. So I guess what, you know, the, the question I want to ask you is what are some of the cases where you've seen videos of blatant bad cop? And then what are some of the ones that have been painted as, um, you know, like a, a race, a race-motivated police killing that actually was a justifiable, you know, self-defense movement by a law enforcement officer? That's a great question. So, um, you know, the first one that comes to mind uh, was there was a situation where I think it was in South Carolina or North Carolina where an officer shot this guy that he's as he's running away. Um, now, the reason I say, you know, it was one of those that you know, it, it seemed bad was because it didn't seem like the guy was a threat to the officer. The context of it was there's a situation. Officer uh, is trying to contact this guy. The guy ends up running away from the officer. The officer ends up pointing his gun at him, shooting the guy in the back. And then um, he says later that the guy tried to tase him. Uh, the guy stole the officer's taser, tried to tase him. And then that's why the officer shot him. And then the, the officer actually is seen on somebody else's camera going back and picking up the taser and dropping it where the suspect was at after he shot him, almost to make it seem like, you know, he planted the taser. Now, I know I've heard two sides of the story. I've heard, obviously, the side where the officer was planting evidence and doing all these things to make it seem like to justify his case. But the other side of that was, I guess, the officer knew who this guy was. And I guess this guy has ran from the officer, uh, you know, multiple times. And, um, you know, and has been very aggressive and violent with this officer. So, I hadn't done a Tillman take on this one just because I hadn't gathered all the facts. But if just by looking at the video, it appeared to be really bad work by the police officer from the standpoint of, you know, he's shooting somebody running away from him. Now, that's not to say that if somebody's running away from an officer, 
you know, if an officer has a justifiable means to, you know, utilize deadly force and what that justifiable means happens to be sometimes is, you know, are they imminent threat to you or the, the public? Um, you know, are they actively fleeing or resisting? Are they uh, uh, are they a fleeing felon? Um, you know, what is the overall necessary necessary want for the suspect? Those are all factors that play into whether or not an officer can use deadly force. And so, you know, we've seen videos where somebody's running away from an officer and an officer shoots him and kills him. And it's completely justifiable because there's a lot of facts that go behind it. But this situation, I don't necessarily know if all those facts were present. Um, going to the situation as far as where it appeared bad or racially motivated, where and it was come to find out it was all justifiable. The one that comes to mind most specifically is the Alton Sterling situation. And the Alton Sterling situation, you know, he's selling CDs in New Orleans and somebody says that he brandished a firearm at him. So officers show up and as they show up, they're trying to confront Alton Sterling and they tell him to take his hands out of his pocket. Well, Alton Sterling is not cooperating. He's passively resisting, keeping his hands in his pocket. The officers are yelling at him. They end up getting into a scuffle with him, trying to get his hands out of his pocket. And now at some point during that scuffle, you know, the officer uh, pulls out his firearm, says he's going for his gun. And then the other officer shoots him, I think it's six times and kills him. Um, the bad thing with that video was, is when the officers come and approach Alan Sterling, they tell him to, you know, get his hands out of his pocket or they're going to put an effing cap in his head. Like those are things that, you know, don't sound pretty on camera. You know, I don't see why we need to utilize, you know, necessary language like that. I mean, not necessarily the language, but more so the context of what the language was used is more of the issue. And so, but when the investigation was all said and done with, even the civil rights activists looked into it, they, they realized that it was a justifiable shoot. And that's because Alan Sterling did have a gun in his pocket. And, you know, it is hard to, you know, perceive what Alan Sterling was trying to do with his hands while his hands were in his pocket. And so, you know, that was painted out in the media to be a huge racially driven, you know, situation where Black Lives Matter came out, they protest and, you know, we're saying that they killed this, this guy for no reason, which in reality of it, no, Alden Sterling was somebody that did pose a threat to officers. You know, he was wanted for a violent crime and all this other stuff. And so that's a prime example of how the media can take things out of context. But the, the real reason of why I do these Tillman takes is more so that, you know, people can get the, the look and the standpoint of what the officer is thinking when they're making, you know, decisions in their day job. Uh, I've been put in situations, deadly situations as an officer and I've had to make decisions that could be, you know, you know, looked at as being questionable. But when you look at all the, you know, the facts behind the situation, you know, you can see how one narrative can change drastically by just by adding context to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you watch some of those videos of uh, you know, how quickly you can get stabbed. You know, you have the ones where, you know, the officer's uh, weapon is holstered and the, the demonstration, the, the guy with the knife is literally 12 feet away and he still manages to stab the person before he can draw his weapon i mean it's it's people don't understand how quickly you can be murdered we had a uh officer sheriff's deputy in orlando here brendan coates and he literally would been in the fire station hanging with the crew like he always did and then got got a call for i don't know if it was a traffic stop or if he just went back on on uh, patrol but anyway pulled over a car and was found shot to death with uh, his taser deployed so again i'm sure the pressure of, of trying to go to you know less lethal force um had probably caused him to choose that and it was it was the wrong choice that time you know so it's you know that but those stories are never told that was a black man that killed a, a white cop you know and i mean they are told i mean i'd say never but you know the, that's what kills me is is 
there are there are horrendous people wearing a badge of all professions that should never be there. And I think that's why, you know, hiring standards and having a, an academy that's actually hard, you know, to 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 really be a um uh god i'm forgetting the word now but but you have to earn your way into that department and then and then setting training standards high allowing you know recovery time so actually staffing your departments properly so you're not forcing officers to work two shifts back to back that's how you create safer streets and then like we said drug culture and you know drug drug um policy and and you know the way we do prisons so that so that we put as as few people that are dangerous to our our law enforcement um officials out there as possible which then only benefits the citizens because they're not getting robbed and mugged as much either but to then say that as a whole you know for example white white men choose law enforcement so they can one day have an opportunity to kill a black man is absolutely insane these people put their lives on the line and are far more likely to die than they are have that opportunity if you want to be a psychotic racist then go do all the other professions where you don't have to risk your life for a complete stranger of a different color. Well, not only that, too. I mean, that's what kills me. Is a lot of people don't know what goes into an officer-involved shooting. And so, you know, if you get into a shooting, you know, not only do you have to live with the fact of, you know, you, you made the choice to utilize deadly force on somebody, but the aftermath of that, the aftermath of that is just crazy. I mean, you have to meet with an attorney and then that attorney, because you're now the suspect of a criminal investigation. And then that 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 case could last anywhere between a year to three years. Um, then not only that, after that case is done, then you have to face, you know, civil litigation. Are you going to be sued? Is your family, you know, are they going to try to come after your family? Um, and then not only that, you have to face the ridicule, not only with, you know, people inside of a department, but people outside of a department. So, you know, I don't know why anybody would sign up to want to go out there and shoot somebody or kill somebody because there's just so much more that goes into it. I mean, again, you know, if you look at the the way the media portrays it, though, again, they make it seem like, you know, people want to go out there. These cops want to go out there and just shoot people and kill them and then go back to living their normal life. Like, that's definitely not what happened. Uh, is it say that it's not possible? Yeah, there's, it's possible that people could just, you know, be sick and twisted in the mind and and actually want to go out there and do those things. But at the same time, I can guarantee you that a majority of officers are not don't have that mentality that they just want to go out there and kill people just for the sake of killing somebody. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. Now what another area that people throw out there a lot is profiling. And it's funny, I was it's hot as hell in Florida now. Our winter is, you know, is long gone, sadly. And there was a, a kid walking by and he had a hoodie on. He had his hood up. And immediately I looked at him and I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. But it's not weird because this kid actually happened to be black that day. It's weird that you're wearing a hoodie in 90 degrees. You know what I mean? So that's what my brain was thinking. And it was probably just, just you know, no ill intent whatsoever. But he was walking through a, a um, uh, you know, a gated community coming out the other side. So that all that's telling me is there's there's some warning signs. The same way as if, you know, a, a white guy comes to me and there's a bulge in, in his waistline. Well, has he got a weapon? You know what I mean? So the, the word profiling to me really gets demonized, whereas profiling is something that we all do to make sure that we're safe. So, for example, you are walking down a sidewalk and there are four skinheads, like shaven head white guys with the tight jeans and the, the Dr. Martins. You're probably going to be a little bit more alert than if it's you know an elderly Asian couple walking by you. You know that's that's profiling. That's that's you being aware of your surroundings. So again, with that whole term, you know, what's your perspective on profiling as a way of actually catching people and you know and uh, 
uh, you know, using that as a tool as a police officer versus as a racial tool? Well, you have two different terms. You have racial profiling, you have criminal profiling. You know, racial profiling is something that, you know, I'm pulling you over because you're Hispanic. You know what I mean? Or I'm pulling you over because you're black or you're I'm pulling you over because you're Asian and I know you do this. Like that's what racial profiling is. But criminal profiling is something completely different. And I've given this analogy and explanation on a past podcast of mine. Uh, I remember there was a situation one time where, you know, I was driving, you know, down the street. I was going back to the department and I saw an ambulance. Uh, it was an old ambulance. that was definitely out of service. It was painted black. And so as I was behind it, it looked like it didn't have a license plate on it. So I pulled it over for no license plate. Well, what I ended up happening was is as I walked up on it, I saw the license plate was actually flipped up. And so, you know, I do my investigation as I'm talking to the guys. You know, they seem definitely uh, suspicious. Those two Hispanic guys. And so and, and I say they're suspicious just based on the answers that they were giving me. And then, you know, you couple that with I started smelling a, 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 over, a overwhelming sense of gasoline for whatever reason. So I asked him, I was like, why am I smelling all this gasoline? So, you know, I asked him to search the car. They let me search the car. And I saw these huge, like, 200-gallon drums of gasoline in the back of this ambulance. So then I also saw, like, a, um, you know, a nozzle that you use to pump gas. And so in the front seat of that vehicle, they also had black beanies. They had a crowbar and all this other stuff. So I ended up arresting these guys for possession of burglary tools. Well, come to find out, the very next day, um, you know, we had multiple reports that somebody had walked onto these truck yards and siphoned gas out of the trucks. And so it was those same guys that I had pulled over the night before that had just used that. They were using the, utilizing that vehicle to go siphon gas out of these trucks. So you fast forward. And I remember um, going to uh, we you know, we did this thing. It's called a wall stop where you kind of know, you know, what you're going to stop or who you're going to stop before, you know, you actually make the stop because you have reason to believe that they're carrying some type of narcotics or something. And so, you know, I was asked to go stop this car because there were some drugs inside. So when I went and stopped the car, you know, it was a nice, very, very nice Mercedes. Didn't have license plates on it or nothing like that, but very, very nice. So when I pulled it over, there was this young female inside, you know, good looking female. And so she's inside and uh, she looked like she was coming or going from the gym. The car was squeaky clean. She didn't have anything inside of it. All she had was a, um, I think it was like a Louis Vuitton bag on the front passenger seat of the vehicle. So, you know, we asked her, it was me and my partner. We asked her where she's coming from. And so she was like, hey, I'm just coming from the gym or whatever. And so as we're getting ready to release her and let her go, um, the guys that actually told us to, to do the stop were like, hey, do not let her go. Like, don't let that vehicle go. So they ended up coming to our, our scene. And when they got there, you know, they pulled her out of the car and they searched her bag. And inside that Louis Vuitton bag was pounds of methamphetamine. And so the moral of the story is, is one of the things I realized from both of those stops that I just mentioned was the criminal profile in that situation was not that it was a Hispanic female or not that it was Hispanic males. The criminal profile was is there was these guys or this girl uh, driving around the city with no license plates on their cars. And so, you know, being in the professional law enforcement you arrest a lot of people, and when you arrest people, you get to see patterns and trends and things that people do to elude cops, to you know, to avoid us and different things like that. And in this situation, it just so happened to be that they're driving around without license plates on. So you know, I base my profiling off off of trends that I see, not the color of somebody's skin, not the language that they're using, but trends that I see that I see you know, when I arrest people. And so I think that's the biggest difference with, you know, profiling that we can talk about is that, 
you know, racial profiling is uh, by and large illegal on all, you know, in, in no matter what way you look at it, it's definitely illegal to pull somebody over just for being black or Hispanic, white, Asian, you name it. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, you know, observing trends and then pulling somebody over based on those criminal trends that you're seeing. Yeah. And I think that's where those two get confused. You know, I, I really do. I think that, you know, like you said, with, with the, uh, the ambulance one, you know, it could have been that those two were mechanics and, you know, the, they, <laughs> they were about to go to Colorado with any, I mean, there, there could also be an innocent explanation for that. And then, you know, like, oh, but they pulled us over because they were Spanish, but you saw things that, you know, suggested crime. And obviously, you know, breaking and entry tools and ski masks are definitely a big, a big red flag. So I think that those two are kind of, overlapped a little bit as well and of course you know if you're just calling someone over for their the color of their skin or refusing to serve someone in your restaurant because of the color whatever that's that's a completely different issue but to pretend that you're not taking you know for example you're looking for someone with gang ties and you pull someone over that has the same kind of tattoos and you know is dressed the same way as that gang likes to dress or the same colors that that's part of the like you said the criminal profiling by that point because you're looking for someone that matches that kind of description and the funny and the funny thing with those criminal gang profiles is that you know the information we get as far as their colors the the slang that they use the language that they use that's not stuff that police officers have made up that stuff is information that they've made up and they've actually disclosed it to police officers or they've disclosed it to somebody saying hey these are the color of our gangs this is how we're going to wear our pants or this is the language that we're going to use. And so that's what's also interesting about it is a lot of this stuff isn't stuff that police officers are going out there making up and saying, hey, this is the, the profile. No, these are profiles that have actually you know, been vocalized by members of that gang or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to go back to law enforcement because something that your profession and my profession, I'm sure, you know, many, many others as well. But but we have been very made very aware of it probably the last literally like 12 months is both of our professions have lost basically double the amount of police officers to suicide or you know firefighters than we have to line of duty deaths and your profession obviously has got a lot of line of duty deaths just from all the violence we're seeing on the streets as well so what's been your perspective of mental health within your actual profession well i mean the the mental health within our professions uh definitely can't be overlooked um, it's alarming that you have more officers dying by suicide than you actually do line of duty deaths, especially when line of duty deaths is pretty high. Same thing with fire. And, the, you know, the reason behind this is not because that, you know, these officers or firefighters are cowards and just, you know, taking their lives like that's not it at all. The reason behind it is you have to put yourself in the shoes of a police officer or a firefighter. And think about all the calls for service that we go on on a daily basis that we're dealing with. I, just last week, man, I went on a call for service where a guy hung himself. You know what I mean? So I go on a call for service where a guy actually kills himself by hanging. And then the very next minute, I'm going on a call for service because, you know, there's somebody that, you know, is afraid of the dog that's trying to bite them. So you have two extremes. You have one that this is a call like you're wondering, why am I even on this call? We have another that, you know, I can't, you know, this is a very sad place that I have to go deliver this news to this lady where her husband just hung herself. And so, you know, the reason why firefighters are going through the same thing equally is, is the same thing is because they're the ones that are going on these calls, rendering medical aid to somebody that's trying to kill themselves. And so, you know, these are situations that we have to be able to address within our professions so that way we can stay mentally sane. The way I've been able to do it is because, like I said before, is, you know, I, I personally believe 
in Jesus Christ and as my Lord and Savior. And that kind of helps put an explanation for me uh, on why I see the things I see or why people do what they do. Because outside of that, I don't have an explanation of why somebody will go out there and molest a kid or somebody will go out there and have sex with children like, you know, that there's no explanation of those things like that. And so when I realized that, we know, you know, as the Bible talks about, not only do we wrestle with flesh and blood, but spirits and principalities that rule this earth, that that's an explanation that makes sense to me. So we have to be able to find ways that we can help our first responders out. And it's not just firefighters. It's not just police officers. You have EMTs. You have nurses, you have doctors, all these people that experience trauma on a daily basis. And as human beings, we were not created to experience that trauma on a daily basis, but yet we have to anyway. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And I think another uh, kind of elephant in the room that a lot of people don't understand because, you know, they, they haven't really been educated in this area, but the people that you mentioned, doctors, nurses, police officers, you know, the medics, the firefighters, EMTs, they're also shift workers. So you add what you're seeing to the, the effects of sleep deprivation, which we're learning now from the sleep medicine world is horrendous for physical health, which is it definitely explains why you get officers 10, 20 years in that are physically completely different than they were when they were in the academy. And then mentally as well, like it does break down the mind. And, you know, like I've talked about so many times, specifically with Christians. So if you were raised in some sort of religion where you believe that you're going to hell if you take your own life, and these men and women still do. What does that tell you about the brain chemistry? What does that tell you that the the the, you know, the job has done to your mind that you would still choose that over living here, and and the the, the misunderstood concept of well as well as so many of these people feel like they're a burden to their family when the truth is actually obviously 180 degrees from that you know they're going to leave that burden to their family but it's it's so heartbreaking but like you said the things that we see but also the effects of these shifts and we should be taking care of of our men and women and giving them the rest and recovery so they can function physically and mentally at their peak well that's what they do with athletes i mean if you think about as a former athlete you know they would you know we would train day in day out you know, want to give us the best food, want to give us the best, you know, uh, forms of liquid for hydration, whatever it may be, because they they recognize and it's scientifically proven that, you know, that you, you will perform optimally uh, if you, you know, intake certain things into your system, you have a certain amount of sleep. So if we're doing that for professional athletes, why aren't we doing it for the professional athletes that truly matter, which are our first responders? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to shift a little bit. So you're, you know, serving your community as a police officer, but you took it upon yourself to, um, to, you know, start, uh, the, uh, breaking barriers and then the podcast as well. So lead me through the inception of that. So, um, we, uh, I started breaking barriers United with the sole purpose of bridging the gap between law enforcement and community. Um, and I, I did that because again, going back to the negative interactions I had with law enforcement, I saw that there needed to be some change and I, I realized that, you know, policing needs a modern day update. And so that's why I adopted the the phrase of changing the face of modern day policing. And so uh, I started Breaking Barriers United by going out there, speaking to, to anybody that will listen to my message about what police work is really about, you know, why we do what we do, how we do what we do. And that kind of just caught fire, man. People were really taken to this presentation, understanding what it is that we do. And so I started speaking across the country to kids and people in churches, uh, everybody. And then that kind of evolved into me, you know, really trying to go out there and recruit some of the, the next generation officers, understanding that we need to recruit the best of the best. 
And so we also need to retain the best of the best. And so, you know, that led to me speaking, you know, with Caliber Press and going across the country talking about recruiting and retention. And then one of the things that I realized is that, you know, after I finished the presentation, people will come up to me with questions and, you know, ask me all sorts of different things about different topics. And so I realized that this conversation needed to continue. And so that's when me and my one of my really good friends, AJ, started the podcast, who's an officer in Ohio, uh, called the Estimated Podcast, where we change, you know, we want to continue this dialogue of what it means to be, you know, police officers during this modern day time. And so um, our business has been growing, you know, very, very quickly. And it's just been nothing but a blessing. And it's just so, um, you know, so phenomenal to see people's opinions and perceptions change on, on law enforcement on a day-to-day basis yeah well that's how i came across both of you so he he is um oh no is the popo on instagram is that right yeah he, he's oh no it's the popo uh so yeah follow him on instagram and all the other social media platforms but yeah oh no it's the popo and he's a good guy man he's we've become really really good friends over the last two years man yeah. So what I wanted to say with him was, you know, what you're doing, what he's doing, what Craig Konami's doing is using that social media. And again, you're showing videos of you. And obviously, when you were about to leave the schools, so that big dance that you did, which went absolutely viral. Um, and then his stuff he does in the community, Craig skateboarding with the community. And, and the, he does a lot of jujitsu in his, uh, his uniform as well, which is great for his own profession. But you're putting out there this relationship between the two that the law enforcement you know community can relate to and then the kids can relate to and i think that that's the kind of thing that we do need to see on social media yep it, it sure is and so you know you have those officers that are the negative ones this is you know why are we doing this what it was this for but you know it pays dividends in the long run it pays dividends you know like it goes back to the whole concept you know you don't want to get to know the community when you uh you want to get to know the community before you uh, before you need to know them yeah, absolutely. And just going back to what you said, your you know bad experience at the beginning, when you mentioned the hanging, I forget who it was. One of one of my guests talked about this. Is say for example, they pulled up next to you, you're on your phone. They might have just run on a fatal wreck where two kids were killed by a distracted driver. You know what I mean? So that's another yeah. thing people don't think is oh why you know what's up their ass? Well, they may have just seen because I've had this myself. I've literally come from a fatal wreck and then immediately gone home and had my neighbor squawking about me uh, me about my cat or something and i'm ready to <laughs> freaking knock him out you know what i mean do you know what i was just doing an hour ago yeah, and you're nobody bitching? understands no so nobody understands and that's why again going back to me saying like we have to be able to con- uh, control our own narrative like we got to be able to be vulnerable and tell people what we're going through we have to be able to tell people like this is what i've experienced and so forth and so on so that way they can show a little bit more empathy the next time you know somebody does screw up yeah well, you mentioned about um, talking about recruiting and retention. So what are some of the solutions that you see? Because obviously, you know, listening to the narrative at the moment, it, it really is dissuading a lot of people from choosing law enforcement. And it absolutely shouldn't. But sadly, that's what we're being, you know, after the story we're being told and, and this kind of very uh, visible media um, impression of law enforcement, of course, it's going to dissuade some people that were on the fence about joining that profession. Yeah. So one of the things that I always talk about when I go speak is uh, the first things first is we have to be able to change the perception of the way people view law enforcement. Like we can't try to go out and want to recruit more people and, you know, you know, say that, you know, we're going to get the best of the best if we can't change perception. Uh, we have to change the perception. I've, I, one of the things I've also said is, you know, the best police officer out there is a person that doesn't know it yet. 
But how do you get to that person? You have to change their perception of it first. And so number one is you change their perception. The second thing you have to do is you have to promote the lifestyle of being a law law uh, law uh, law enforcement officer. Uh, what I mean by pro- promoting the lifestyle? Well, there's a lot of honor that comes with being an officer. You know what I mean? There's a lot of pride that you get by taking or by being a first responder or police officer. So we have to be able to promote the lifestyles. And depending on where you live in the United States, in some places you get paid well to do it. So, you know, promote that positive lifestyle that you can live as a police officer. And then the last but not least is you have to be able to adopt and promote social media. You know, uh, our next generation lives and dies on social media. So you got to be able to, as a department and agency, be able to put the good thing, to put good positive content out there. Um, because that's where people are going to be able to see what your narrative is. So, so that's what, what I mean when I say you got to be able to control your narrative, utilize platforms like social media to change your narrative. So, you know, if I had to sum the three solutions that I offer up to people, it's changing perceptions, it's promoting, promoting positive lifestyle, and it's pushing social media. I love it. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm going to transition to some closing questions so we can let you get on with your day. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Man, there's a bunch of books that I, I love. So uh, one of the books I just got done reading, and it's one of my buddy's books. His name is uh, Bedros Koulian again, and it's called Man Up. And it's a, it's a leadership book. And it talks about, you know, sometimes where the rubber meets the road, when you feel like you just want to go cower and go to sleep and go hide in your hole, that's where we really have to just sack up and just go ahead and and, 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 and make those hard decisions that nobody else wants to make. So Man Up is a good book. I'm actually currently in a book uh, right now called Relentless, and uh, that's uh, uh, written by Tim Grover. And Tim Grover is a trainer for Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, and Dwayne Wade. And he talks about that relentless mentality that those guys had, which is what made them you know, the icons that we see them as now. So that's a good one. Um, you have the success intersection, and that talks about where your passion and your talents intersect. Uh, that's where you're going to find your success. And so, uh, that's also a good book. And then the last one that I'll recommend today is a spiritual book by Tony Evans called pathways. And, uh, he talks about how there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as a, you know, a happenstance or coincidence, uh, with God, you know, everything happens for a reason. And he uses the story of Esther in the Bible to take us, uh, through the story of the invisible hand of God and that how everything that we go through happens for a reason. And so those are four books that I've recently read, and every single one of them has really, uh, you know, um, you know, ministered in my life in one way or another. Fantastic. Those are four titles I've never heard before, so thank you for that. No problem. All right, so next question, movie that you love. Oh, Bad Boys, man, without a doubt. Bad Boys <laughs> 1, Bad Boys 2, Bad Boys 3, man. Like, those are some of the best movies uh, I've seen. Uh, that's one of the reasons that was one of my inspirations to become a police officer, man. When you get to see Will Smith, you know, now granted, I'm still waiting on the Ferrari and Porsche that Will Smith has, but man, he definitely look makes police work look cool. Yes, he does indeed. <laughs> All right. And then the documentary, any of those that you've loved? Oh, documentaries. Um, you know, the one I actually recently just saw, I mean, I can't think of any documentaries as of recent, but the one. The one recent one I just saw was the one about Aaron Hernandez, and I just thought it was interesting just to see. You know, we talked about the that mental that mental uh, capacity of our mind and and where you know we have room for improvement and depression, all that stuff. I just thought it was you know pretty crazy on the story of Aaron Hernandez, how he went from being you know poster boy in the in the game of the NFL to you know ultimately to taking his own life. So that was a 
a real uh, good documentary to watch on Netflix. Yeah, and it was interesting to see, you know, because there's no black and white, there's no one cause, but when you had like childhood trauma and, you know, the the probably TBIs that he got, I mean, they showed the, the CAT scans of his brain. Um, yeah, I mean, it was there was some lessons to be learned from that. It was pretty... Uh, Pretty tragic for his victims, but it was almost a sad story even for his own life. 100%. 100%. Right. So, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a good one, man. Man, you're putting me on the spot today, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say my buddy AJ shouldn't come on here. Uh, oh, no, it's a popo. Uh, he's a phenomenal guy and, uh, and I could also make that connection if you, if you need it. But, um, you know, not only is he a brother of mine, but he's also somebody that's, you know, doing really good things and his story, man, you talk about a story of resiliency, a story of that underdog mentality, the story of, you know, when, you know, all odds are against him, him making something out of nothing. Uh, he, he's the guy, man. So I definitely would recommend AJ to come on this podcast. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah let's make that connection. I'd love to have him. I'll do it. I'll do it today. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So then last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress when you're not uh, running the uh, the podcast and everything else and then work in the streets? You know, I quarantine myself in the light of, uh, of coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you know, honestly, man, uh, I like to golf a lot, but I will tell you, man, um, it, it's a tragedy that we're going through what we're going through as a country with this coronavirus thing. But man, I was talking to my wife about this last night. It was very refreshing just to not have anything scheduled uh, on my days off because, you know, I work 40 hours a week. But when I'm not working, typically I'm out speaking somewhere. I know in February, you know, I, I was in uh, the state of Florida. I was in the state of uh, uh, Michigan. And I was also in the state of, uh, well, I was up north. I was in, in Oakland, California, all in the same month. And then I was scheduled to go to Sacramento, Colorado here soon. So, you know, to not actually have any speaking engagements or anything like that or, you know, it's kind of been refreshing. So to do what I do to decompress is spend time with family. You know, me and my son, we watched Captain America the other day. We watched Iron Man yesterday and we start watching the Avengers today. So uh, it's just cool spending time with my wife and my family, man. Brilliant. Now, whereabouts in Florida were you? Uh, we're, I was in Jacksonville, so I was in Jacksonville and then we were in, um, is it Gainesville? Yeah. Like, God, you were right down the street from me. Shit. We should have done this oh, last month. <laughs> man, if I would have known that I would have, I would have came and stopped by. <laughs> yeah, no, that's brilliant though. No, but I think you're absolutely right. That's what I'm seeing is, um, you know, people are being forced to be present now. I'm sure there's a lot of cell phone usage. I know I've, I've posted more than I normally do, but you know, there's, uh, when everything's canceled and you know some people literally are being sent home whether whether that's good financially or not is another question but you know they're they're being forced to rest and forced to you know maybe pick up that guitar they haven't played in six months or like you said there's there's all those funny memes about i just you know day two of the coronavirus i just met this woman apparently she's my wife she seems nice (laughs) you know what i mean so i think there is that element like it's it's happening whether you like it or not so make the most of it spend time with your kids you know do the things that you've you've put off for so long and then that way when this has come and gone you're like well yeah we know financially we're we're challenged a bit but my god that was that was nice just to spend that quality time well let's look at it like this man i mean Every single one of us has been given a God-given gift. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has a talent. And so, you know, we've been so 
you know, we've been taken captive by our jobs. We've been taken captive by, you know, all the distractions within our lives. And this is the first time that we can actually, we're actually forced to focus on the family. We're forced to focus on ourselves. And so, you know, I know there's a lot of negative stuff going on with this coronavirus, but let's look at the glass half full for a second and say, you know what, I'm going to go back to focusing on my family. I'm going to go back to focusing on my talents and my passions and use this time to to get back to my grassroots and, and start, you know, improving my life and, and everything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree anymore. Um, so last thing then, where can people find the website and then where can they find you on social media? So my website is Breaking Barriers United. So if you go on Breaking Barriers United, no spacers or nothing like that, you'll be able to find us there. Uh, our Instagram handle is breaking underscore barriers underscore united. And then uh, our um, TikTok is Officer Tillman. All right. Well, Ryan, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation. Like I said, I followed you and AJ for a while now, and you just got a very different perspective. And with with the the school resource element of your story, I thought that was very powerful to hear. You know, a young motivated officer and your perspective of what you were able to do in the schools as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to reach out. Oh, anytime, James, anytime, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. 